I'm going to ask my first question and then I'll probably go to Stacy to see uh, one of the, some of the questions from the Slido uh, present uh, app that we have there. And then if you would like to ask a question, the microphone is right here. Please just help yourself come on forward and I will see you at the corner of my eye and we'll make sure that we, we get to your questions. Austin, I think I wanted to start, um, well, first of all, I, I just need to say thank you again. I mean, you, we've already said that so many times, but it's just um, to to be able to be in this space with that level of raw, honest, vulnerable conversation and to have it be received is, is really a gift. And yeah, there's times where we're uncomfortable, um, but that uncomfortability is, is such a gift. And I, I actually want to thank all of you for entering into that space as well. It's really encouraging. Um, I wanted to start with um, two, actually two questions. The first question is, we're a church, and you kind of ended on the encouragement of what organizations can do. And um, so my first question is, we recognize that even though we may have a heart for really, really doing this, uh, our behaviors are falling short. And one of the things that I find when I think about intentionally diversifying is the idea that if I'm, how do I go about doing that without tokenizing? Because it feels like I'm stuck between those two options. I'm intentional um, about, you know, just not worrying about it, or I'm intentional about making it happen, but then it's like, oh, there's a black person, there's a person of color, and we'll just get you on board, and then then you're just tokenizing. So I I feel caught in that, and that might be my own insecurity and stuff. So help me walk through maybe some of the more practical steps of what a church uh, like ours or an organization would do in that Yeah, so I think a lot of churches are, right? A lot of churches are trying to be multicultural and aren't sure how to go about doing that. So my first question would be, uh, why are you trying to be multicultural? Is that what God has really called you to? Um, There are some folks who believe that every single church should be a multicultural church, right? And there are some people who believe that there's space for like a Korean church and there's space for a black church, but there's no reason why a white church should exist, right? So I mean, white church should become multicultural. Y'all with me? So so multiple schools of thought on this, right? Um, I think that if you are in a location that's diverse, it would make sense for you to have a diverse church. If you are not located in a place that is diverse, then God's probably calling you to something else. (laughs) I suspect. Um, so I am, obviously, I'm not at the school that every church needs to be diverse. Um, so my first question would be, are you sure? Or do you already reflect the, your neighborhood, the community, the city? If it ain't a whole lot of black folks here in the first place, then the expectation that you would have 50 of the black folks who are here is maybe unreasonable and not practical. And if they're all attending a black church, I guarantee they come to yours. <laughs> Like, this is not going to happen. If there are black folks who are like, I want to hear gospel music, and I want to hear a black person preach, and I want to get peppermints from the church mother on the front row, then they're not going to this part. Right? And I think we have to be okay with that. (laughs) Now, churches who do feel called to this, I think, have, have to change before people arrive. And I think that's really difficult to do. Um... And the truth is, I don't know how you do that, but I think that most multicultural churches have to figure out how to prove, again, that they are credible, that they are safe, so that people will arrive, right? Um, 
I think what I'm more interested in at this point is I shift my focus from just like a multicultural church that gets to say it's multicultural for the fun of being multicultural, um, is what are you doing for the community? Mm. Right? So shift from we are diverse and we're going to celebrate that to we are going to use whatever resources we have to pursue racial justice in our community. So I wonder what it would look like for churches to show up at court hearings where someone is at risk of being deported. That's what I wonder about. I wonder what it would look like for a church to show up um, at a ritzy white school and say, listen, you got to have more open spots. Or we're all pulling our kids out. I have a friend who calls this um, institutional neighborliness and I love that phrase because so often we only think of neighborliness as this one-on-one thing right? and the fact that she puts institutional in front of it makes it larger like you can be a neighbor to the entire community you can be a neighbor who is taking care of criminal justice or education or health or whatever justice issue that your church feels passionate about, whether they're all white or multicultural. That's really good. We got, I mean, I've been in church world my entire life, and the idea of diversity um, feels itself like a bragging right. Yes. Right? Um, yes. Hey, look at this. we got our people of color, and our percentages are growing. But I love, <laughs> I mean, it's painful, and it's hard. The challenge of, are you actually engaged? That's right. Active. Out on the streets, pursuing racial justice as a core value of who you are and in your faith. And you can't tell me that if, if, so let's just go with like ICE and deportations, right? If you showed up at all these deportations and said, nope, we'll vouch for them, nope, we'll find them a job, no, please don't, would there not be an increased number of people who speak Spanish at your church? (laughs) Like, surely that would happen, right? And so I think that's part of the credibility too, right? Is that you do. You show, you express your care for the actual bodies of people, and then they get to decide whether or not they show up. Yeah, it reminds me of the news story that, um, I, I'm terribly sorry, I forget the country, but uh, this church held 24-hour services every single day because it, uh, in their country it was illegal to interrupt a church service, and they had refugees wow. in their church, so wow. they just held services. They had a schedule and a rotation 24 oh, hours a day for days on end, uh, until they got uh, rested for the, for the refugees that they're around. That, 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 that tells me you care about refugees. Right, it, it was a, right now I know <laughs> that you care about refugees. Okay, my, my last question I want to make sure that we get to the floor. Um, we are churches and we are people of faith, and I would love to hear you share about your relationship with Jesus. Um, I think I asked you earlier about your speaking of why the Christian conference, and I would, I would like to ask you that question. Why are you still a Christian? Why are you a Christian? Why, why are you a follower of Jesus? And what does that mean, or how does it inform everything that we just experienced? Um, So I was was born into a family that was Christian in name only, right? So we weren't anything else. But I don't remember, like, praying at the dinner table, and we didn't go to church or anything like that. But my my parents sent me to a Christian school, so I didn't know we weren't Christian. (laughs) I thought we was. I did not know friends. And so, um, for any of you who have not attended a private Christian school, um, at least back then, they had chapel every Friday. And so I accepted Jesus every Friday for (laughs) the first eight years of my life. So I honestly don't know a life 
without Jesus. And to be perfectly frank, I never went through like a, a period of doubting or wondering. Um, it's just not a part of my my story. Um, I was ordained in the church when I was 14 and started preaching at 19. And so being in love with Jesus is all I know. Um, and that's the truth. But my theology has changed a great deal. So I went from a school where um, Jesus was white in all the illustrated Bibles, right, to a black church where Jesus was very concerned about prostitutes, you know, um, into like a season of Black Lives Matter where I had to ask, how does God think about black lives? Um, and so my theology around who God is and what God cares about has evolved tremendously. Um, and it's really difficult to put into words. Um, but I think I would say that I'm having to both reimagine who God is and and root who God is in an actual Bible story, <laughs> right? So I grew up hearing the story that um, black people were enslaved because Ham was cursed by God, right? Then I'm 20-something, and I read this story and find out Ham was never cursed at all. Come on, yo, how you gonna have a whole... Like a whole reality around this, and that's not even what's all gonna happen in the story. Come on. So, so undoing, right? That there was a lot of undoing. That's why I have to figure out how to untie white supremacy and Christianity um, because the version I was getting was so intertwined, um, and, and, and I suspect that would be a lifelong journey yeah. of unentangling. I love the phrase "reimagine." Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, for those of you who submitted questions, please uh, share one of the. And she wanted to be clear: this is not her question. This is your question. <laughs> okay, I'm actually going to pair two about white people. Mm-hmm. Um, so the section tonight about nice white people, where Alyssa shared um, this person suggesting. Um, isn't friendship acts of love and isn't that enough of a friend test because white people are also human um, and then another one about do you think there are dangers in generalizing white folks in the way that your book does and here's why so in the book I, I primarily talk about whiteness I don't usually talk about white people um, and Anybody could perform whiteness. In fact, a lot of black folks do, um, right? Perpetuate whiteness. Um, so here's what black people should be doing, and here's what's wrong with black people, and here's what's wrong with black culture, and there's plenty of black folks who will do that, right? But that is still perpetuating whiteness. Um, and so, so whiteness is the term that I would typically use um, for those who have read my book. Um, however, I cannot spend my whole time qualifying some white people, every now and again a white person. In this instance, I had a white person. Like, that's a waste of time. If I'm not talking about you, then why are you, why are you stressed? Why are you stressed? I don't understand. The reason why I love that the first line in my book is white people can be exhausting, I love that line because white people laugh too. Because white folks know other white folks who are exhausting. White folks be like, yeah, my Uncle Joe had me exhausted the other day, man. I know it. 
right? <laughs> so folks who have been in this long enough recognize that there is something particular about whiteness and that white folks who are not actively trying to dismiss all the privileges of whiteness on a daily basis are perpetuating it. And so I do not spend any amount of time trying to qualify and like make, try and uh, limit folks' white fragility around being called white. You are white, I cannot fix that for you. Um, but you can decide who you wanna be. And that is my invitation, right? I am not cursing anyone. I am not damning anyone. I'm not suggesting that if you're white, you can't be a good person, that you can't change, that you can't do anything right. I am saying that if you are white, that it is going to be lifting a burden to take whiteness off. And that's gonna be hard, and I don't make any qualms about that. Um, regarding friendship, we could talk all day about what friendship should be and what it could do and what it might look like, but I am telling you as a black woman, if I cannot tell you about the conversations that are happening in my home around race, we ain't friends. Like that just is what it is and I can't fix that. I cannot fix that. You have to decide that you want to be trustworthy. Now, there are white people in my life who I would not call friends, again, that I am polite with and I will have dinner with, and I'm, I'm not suggesting that it's either friendship or animosity, but I'm saying if you want to really call it a friendship, then I got to be able to tell you about what's happening in my life and not have you respond with, mm, you know, I don't know, right? That's horrendous. That I would say, I'm afraid, um, my husband is traveling across the state today and I'm afraid that he's gonna get stopped in one of these little towns. And the response be, you know, I'm just not sure. You know, cops are our friends. You know, cops' lives matters too. You know, like that, why would I share with you how I'm feeling? So I am not suggesting that there isn't great value in friendship. I am saying that a lot of white folks don't realize that they are not experiencing the wholeness of the people of color in their lives. That's what I'm saying. Is that clear? Okay. Well, Brene Brown has talked about being able to bring your whole self yes. to the relationship. Love me some Brene Brown. Right. And basically- That woman is helping all of us emotionally. <laughs> She is. Yeah. And basically what you're saying is in that kind of relationship, I'm not able to bring my whole self. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Please make your way up to the microphone. Too. So this is one that someone submitted. So she said, the, or sorry, yes, and the person said, first, thank you for your words. Your writing is challenging and beautiful. I truly think you are a prophetic voice. Um, now, a long-winded question. Mm -hmm. um, this person is a white person married to a person of color. It has been a decade of conversation and questioning my rightness. Sure. Is he just wrong? That's not how you hang. Or is my right as right at work? So for the sake of giving him a break, where is the line of being an ally or speaking truth versus white savior? Oh, Jesus. <laughs> um, oh, so this, this is hard. And part of the reason it's hard is because it's within a marriage. Um, and every marriage looks different. And I know a lot of marriages that have been complicated, a lot of interracial marriages have been complicated due to the most recent election.
speaking truth um, often requires speaking truth to power. Um, I'm trying to come up with a very quick example. Um, so, so let's take Black Lives Matter. Often people will say, so I'll say something like positive about Black Lives Matter, okay? And then someone else will respond, oh, but what about black on black crime? Isn't that an issue too? Um, that, while it might be a valid issue, the issue of crime within black America might be a valid concern, that is not speaking truth to power. Speaking truth to power would be looking at who is in power, i.e. police, and saying, hmm, there are some things y'all need to change about how you do this. Are y'all with me? Mm -hmm. um, so marriage complicates this, depending on how you think about marriage, right? At least in theory, maybe no person is in power, maybe one person is, I don't know. Be that as it may, okay? Um, but I would say, let me just shorten this, friends. I think you have to defer to the person of color. That's what I'm trying to say. You gotta defer to the person of color. Because the person of color is experiencing something that the white person is not, period. And so I think we have to start with belief. And so often people of color are quite simply not believed. That our experiences aren't believed, that no one believes how often we're asked where we're really from, or no, not often how, asked you know, whether or not we speak English, or how often somebody is all up in my hair, or, right, like it's like we are simply not believed. And I think this is even more important in a marriage that the person of color must be believed. We have to start there. Now, within a marriage, we can talk about what we do next. What is the white person's role? How does the white person's family interact on this? Is the white person's family safe to be around, right? Like, we can talk about what to do after that as a married couple. But I think we have to start with believing the person of color and that we are not speaking truth to them, that we are hearing truth from them. Yeah. But that's a hard question to answer without knowing more about, you know, the topic and what's involved and what's being said. I'm not a therapist, y'all. I'm trying to keep my own marriage together. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> marriage is hard. Even when you like them, it's so hard. Please. Um, my question was about the hypervisibility. Hyper yeah. Of black people in particular because of their skin. Sure. The visibility of their needs. Yes. How do you make your needs oh. Or how do you get your needs met? Since they're so hard. Um, Gosh, I don't know. I wish, y'all, I so wish these were like, like I had 10 steps in my back pocket for all of this. But the truth is, this is a world that is dangerous for black women. This is a world that is dangerous for people of color. This is a world that is dangerous for us to say, I have a need. It's dangerous to, to have a need. So I would say, one, people of color, can, we cannot make ourselves responsible for how people react to us in our bodies. It's not healthy. 
And that's what we've been doing for a long time, is trying to make ourselves, contort ourselves, put ourselves in a box, chop off an arm, not laugh so loud, not be so loud, not do this, that, or the other, in order to make people feel like all is well here. And maybe then if I express a need, it will be heard. It hasn't worked. And so I think for anyone who is in a traumatizing space, any person of color who is in a traumatizing space where you cannot say, I have a need, it's time to have an exit strategy. And when you get in the next interview and they start asking questions and they say, what's your favorite movie? I'm gonna need for you to not say Les Mis <laughs> or Titanic or Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I'm gonna need you to be like the color purple. That is my favorite movie, right? Like I need you to be authentic. I need you to show up and bring your whole self if that is possible, if you have the privilege to do so. Because we have to start choosing spaces that are safe. And the only way we know or can kind of glean whether or not they might be safe is by showing up as ourselves in the first place and being chosen for who we are and not who the company expects us yeah. to be. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. Hi, I missed the whole conversation at 4.45. That's okay. Right now, so if you cover this, please forgive me. You mentioned the story of Ham, how you had to basically be mm -hmm. yourself with the scriptures. So one of the things, how do you feel about people or the need for people to reconcile decolonizing their minds? Not just white sure. people, sure. but also other people. In, in the U.S. Because yeah. it's not just black and white, even though I know we often just suppose sure. things. Sure. So how do you talk about that with people, about decolonizing their own minds, black people as well as white people in support of, yeah. I guess, reconciliation, sure. multicultural spaces, sure. 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 maybe even black-only spaces? Yep. So yeah. is my question clear? It okay. is. Okay. Thank you. Um, so I think we all have some decolonizing to do, for sure. Um, I don't know that that is my work if I can just be honest. I think there are amazing theologians who are doing that work. Um, so I think of Kelly Brown Douglas, and I think of Shaniqua Walker Barnes, and I think of Howard Thurman. Um, I think that James Cone, um, anyone who identifies as womanist, <laughs> like anyone. Um, I think those are the folks who are on the forefront of teaching us how to read the Bible differently, how to understand the Bible differently, how to ask different theological questions. Um, and I appreciate that work. Um, I think that my work comes out of that, but y'all don't want me up here trying to talk about theology. You really don't. Um, that in particular is not my work, right? I think my theology, I think the way I talk about justice challenges people's theology, but then I just, like, let y'all go home and deal with that. <laughs> I think it's important, though. I, I'm affirmative of that process for all of us. Um, I think it's important. Uh, I'm sorry, can I give an example, Please maybe? Um, so Dr. Wilda Gaffney, mm, um, who we her. talked about, yes. um, has done some wonderful work on this. Mm -hmm. And she takes Genesis 1. So you have this phrase that says, in the beginning, God created. And the, the, the original Hebrew is male. <laughs> In the mm -hmm. beginning, God, he created um, the heavens and the earth. But then two verses down, it is the spirit was hovering over, but the spirit is feminine. Right. So she translates this. 
in the beginning God he created mm -hmm. and the spirit she hovered mm -hmm. right and just that one turn totally disrupts yes the patriarchy the, the standard right. way in which many of us have have been taught what that's those verses right. mean. So that, that might be an example. Of, that's a fantastic yeah, example. She's, she's been great. And I that. think there are so many people on the forefront of this. And here's what's amazing, friends. You could actually learn this via Twitter. You ain't <laughs> even got to read the whole book. Now, I think you should read the whole book. I think you should buy it and read the whole book. But there, like, there is a free education yeah. happening every single day on social media if you just follow the right voices. Right now, it can social media be a dumpster fire? Yes, but could you, could you also earn a master's degree in theology? Yes, I believe you could. So, please. I think my question is also on that line. Um, so, how do you basically unpack the yeah. nature of church, church teaching? Yeah. Um, for example, my daughter came home with a handout about contentment, and how do I teach or how do I help her understand and others understand that telling people who don't have enough to be content is violent? I think we first just have to be open to even hearing it, right? Because so often we think about theology from our own social location. So if we are someone who is privileged and educated and has a great job, then we often don't, it, it's not even in our mind's purview, right? That there are people who don't have all of those things. So I think the first thing we have to do is constantly be aware of what privileges we hold so that we are attuned to those who don't have privileges that we have. I think too, um, I think when it comes to children, we have to go slowly. Um, and obviously as black parents, we can't go as slow as everybody else. Right? Um, but I think, I think two things. So I think for black parents, this is a little different because we are already thinking about race and how to introduce our kids to a very cruel world rather early, right? And so I think finding the language is important for us to do together. So I think that means sitting down and saying to, black mom who's next to us, right? Girl, how would you do this, <laughs> right? Well, how does this sound? Um, because I think so much depends on not just how old your child is, but their level of maturity, their level of empathy, how much they feel the world, right? Because kids are so different in this regard. And I think age matters, right? I don't think we have to destroy <laughs> our kids' image of everything. And I wonder how far questions would get us. Five-year-old, you remember when we were on our way to the grocery store and there was someone outside who was homeless? Remember we talked about that? How do you think this person would read that? Yeah. Do you think this would feel fair? Like, right, like I think we gotta take it out of the lingo that we're used to, would this feel just, right? Would this feel fair? How, would you, how, how do you think this would feel for them, right? So I wonder if questions is a way to get at it, to sort of figure out where they are and whether or not they're in a mature enough place to begin to take in some of that. I think these are also things that we circle back to, right? And there is no one time sitting. I think oftentimes um, when the talk became really prevalent, right? And like everybody became aware of the talk that black parents give their kids, it, it made it sound like it was a talk, 
right? Like there was going to be this one time when we was going to sit down and like destroy our kids' worldview, right? <laughs> like the world is not safe. Um, when the truth is those are multiple conversations, right? And there might be one that sticks out in my memory or their memory, but the conversation is ongoing, right? So I think you can take some of the pressure off. This is going to come back, <laughs> right? So this is not a one or done or your last shot. Um, th that's going to be an ongoing conversation with your child. Mm. I want to say for parents who are white, who are trying to figure out how to raise a good white person, um, I, I heard a, I don't know if she was a psychologist, I'm not sure what, um, what her vocation was, but she was saying that white parents should start talking to their kids about race when their kids are six months old. Uh-huh. She said, this is not for the sake of the kid. This is so that you get used to talking about race. Mm. I'm gonna need for you to have a head start. Don't start trying to talk to your child about race when they're three. You could have had a three-year head start <laughs> trying to get the language for this, yeah. right? So, so I just wanna throw that out there too, that, that to the degree possible, right? Start as early as you can so that you are practicing language, you're having conversations with pastors. Lord have mercy. Mm. Mm -mm. Should I just slip off stage? I know. <laughs> I would say to the degree possible, work with others, right? So that it's not just your voice. I think often what happens is you become one email or you become one conversation and it doesn't feel like you are representative of the larger congregation. Right? So if you can get three parents together and say to Sunday school teacher, I really appreciate what you are trying to do, but these, there's a whole group of people that got left out. Can we rethink how you do this? My guess is that would go farther than, than it feeling like, oh, there was one parent who was disappointed in this. Right? So I think we have to do a better job of not making racial justice the thing that I do and making racial justice the thing that we do so that it's not just by yourself and isolated. And then it becomes personal, right? Because then you get dismissed and it becomes ugly and you gotta move churches. <laughs> so I would, so my question would be who else at church was like, eh, not great, find them. I think that's your first step. And then you speak truth to power. Beautiful. Please. So my first question is, I have a boyfriend that's Asian, uh -huh. specifically he's Taiwanese, okay. and um, he bought me this ring and acquired uh, gifts um, before, and how, and I, my mom calls the ring bubblegum popcorn, which means like it's something that's not really of your value, and okay. like, if you knew your true value, he would have bought you something. Got it. Okay. Um, my question is, how do I, I guess, spark that in other race, especially in him, that I know if I was an Asian woman or a white woman, he would not give me something that's not that valuable. I mean, I'm not materialistic, I'm just saying that he would have known better because of the cultural understanding. You know what I mean? And um, it's kind of hard because then when one person does something to you, it kind of strikes this like, kind of like PTSD in you of like, how should I go about this? How should I like 
redirect this or how should I deal with other race and this. And um, I'm kind of shaken up because I just got through crying because I think a miscommunication just happened through me and another guy. And um, it's because of the cultural difference Mm -hmm. and also the communication barrier. And I just feel like if it was of a different race, you would have came at me correctly in a different way. And it just, what is the, I don't know. I wish, I know it's not going to be that easy, not black and white, to write it down in 10 steps, like you said earlier. And that's not how it's meant to be. It's supposed to be natural. It's supposed to be great. It's not supposed to be like that. And the moment that you start figuring that out, like you can't force yourself to do something, and if you are, then it's other than not natural, then do you have any thoughts? So um, interracial anything is complicated, right? Because we all have stories of injustice in America, and they are deep, and they are painful, and they are real. Most of them are generational. Um, and on top of that, right, so we all have our own story of how America has been horrendous to our, like, particular family, our particular descendants. Yes? Yes. Yes. On top of that, we all deal with white supremacy, right? So all of us, all of us who are people of color are expected to pursue whiteness. So not only have we been through all these injustices that have impacted our wealth, that have impacted our psyche, that have impacted us physically, that have impacted our families, we also are now expected to pursue a particular being, that being whiteness. That's a lot to figure out. That's a lot to figure out between two people. Um, And I think it can only be done with a tremendous amount of um, communication, a tremendous amount of education, and I think both have to be educated about what the other has experienced. If you're in an interracial relationship, I think it is imperative that if, if I was in a relationship with someone who is Chinese, I would need to know backwards and forwards what the Chinese Exclusion Act was, how it impacted their family, what happened. Like I would, I would need to know my Amer- Chinese American history and be able to like, okay, just like I know black history, right? Um, and, and I think it would have to be vice versa, right? For a couple that wants to pursue justice and harmony together. Now, here's the honest to goodness truth, friends. There's a lot of interracial couples who simply do not talk about race. I know. Right? So ultimately, what you're going to do is you're going to find someone, one, who treats you well, regardless of race, right? Um, but I think for the, for the larger group, right, I think we have to be honest um, about all of America's history, And I think you're right, too often we make it black and white. Even when I talk, I make it black and white for the sake of simplicity, right? right? But everybody in this room has a story with America and all of those stories are valid. One is not more important than the other. One is not better than the other. It's important that we know because that's how we breed solidarity, right? Um, 
And so often, the truth is, so, so often our stories intersect somewhere. Somewhere. To know our history is to give us a better opportunity to do better in the future. And I think when people of color are able to know one another's stories deeply, yeah. care about one another's stories deeply, I think we will be better at solidarity. I think we'll be better at casting off white supremacy. But there are real good reasons why we're not good at that. Um, I'm starting a podcast at my college, and it's going to be about African-American awareness. Mm -hmm. And I know, like, just so easily they turned all Black Lives Matter to all lives matter. Yes. If someone, like, kind of asked me, oh, what's wrong with me? Am I bitter? Or, like, um, kind of turns it, tries to turn the attention off of that this is a racial awareness you know, mm -hmm. thing. What should I do so it's not, like... So it's not like kind of turning myself into trying to sugarcoat everything to clear up like what a person might say to you. Yeah, you'll never be able to control how other people respond to you. Just like I can't control how people respond to my book, right? There are lots of people who are really upset that I say white in my book. Right. I mean, really, right? Because we're not supposed to acknowledge that like white people exist. Only like ethnicities exist, <laughs> right? Um, and I can't help that, but that was a decision that I made early on, right? That this is going to make a lot of people angry. Yeah. Um, so you just have to decide, this is how far I'm going to go, and this is what it is. And when people troll me, or when people say they don't like this, or write about me in the newspaper, or whatever, that they're going to have to solve that, because this is a decision that I made for me and the mission of this project. And how do we make it easier for our future African-American young ladies and mm -hmm. also guys? Because James Baldwin wrote an article that said if black language isn't, if black English isn't language, then tell me what is. Mm -hmm. And that, like, what, I didn't really quite understand what that meant until I went to the South, and I'm talking about Texas not Louisiana, um, because I, I didn't quite understand why people would look at me and be like, oh, you're different, you're not like those others, or like with their facial expressions, like, oh, your voice came out like that. Mm -hmm. Like, So how do we, or where do we start? Again, I think that's a problem of white people. That's not your problem. You talk the way you talk. That's not a problem. Uh, folks who are in the country talk the way they talk. And I am a big fan of Ebonics because I think it is amazing that we could be speaking English and all the white folks in the room be real confused. I think that is brilliant. I think that is so brilliant. Um, so again, there are some things that we just gonna have to decide we black or Asian or, right? And this just is what it is. And how does that, why does that define us as uneducated if we speak? White superiority. Yeah. <laughs> it's white superiority. Thank, thank, you. thank you. Please. Hi, just a quick follow-up from um, a comment you made a little bit ago about sure. white pastors. Yeah. As a white pastor pastoring a community of color, mm -hmm. there's my own like, 
like sort of humble and uh, consistent, regular dismantling work that I'm doing um, every day, and especially every Sunday. Um, but I'm also a white pastor in a denomination full of a lot of white pastors. Yeah. So frequently in professional gatherings, finding ways to speak about and for my community. Sure. Um, in solidarity, uh, are there are there things that you wish white pastors were talking about in the same ways that you sort of pointed to white parents talking about race really early on? Are there ways that white pastors can be talking to other white pastors as we sort of get our people? <laughs> get them together. Yeah, get, uh, get our people to be to be more intentional. Um, I recognize that so much of the burden of that work has fallen on people of color, and uh, I don't want to ever um, take take a person of color's place in that conversation, but sure. I, would, I would love to be an ally and bearing some of that burden. So yeah. if you have any thoughts about ways white pastors can be speaking to other white pastors mm-hmm. about ways to respond. Yeah, I'm going to take it one step higher up. I think white people should be talking to other white people. Period. <laughs> right? Um, so in your context, that's a great example. Um, but I think generally speaking, you can sit down if you want. You don't have to stand up there. <laughs> um, but I would say, so here's often what happens. White person not woke, doesn't know a thing about race, right? White person learns about race, has aha moment, dedicates themselves to learning more about race. White person encounters Uncle Joe. White person says they're tired. I'm sorry, you learned about race three seconds ago. How are you gonna be tired? What in the world? Right, that there is this, you know what? I think it's called white stamina. Sorry. That will be the name of my next book. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But but you all have seen this, right? So um, a white person like spends six months like talking about their support of Black Lives Matter, and now they're going to log off Facebook because it's just too much, right? It's like. What are you talking about? Get in the game, people. Um, And so I think that there is a way for white folks to talk to other white folks. Here's what often happens to me, friends. So my book is fairly hard hitting for someone talking about racial justice, particularly in a Christian context, right? Most of those books don't start with white people are exhausting. Fair? Okay. Um, What happens is a white person will read my book, think about all the racist people in their lives, and then be like, Oh man, all these people need you. Need me. All these people need you. And I'd be like, no, all these people need you. They need you. You might need me, but I expect you to go talk to those folks. I ain't talking to those folks. I'm not going over there. Don't invite me to that church. I get thrown out. Are you crazy? Does that make sense, friends, that there is work that I enjoy doing and there is part of the work that people of color enjoy doing and there is part of it that is not safe for us to do. That is what you should be doing. Does that make sense? Um, So what does that look like? So now let's go back to your specific pastoral example. I think that looks like going back to your congregation and saying, what would you like to see changed? I think that means saying to the conferences, I'm going to bring three people with me. It's not just going to be me. 
because I need my community to hear what's being said here. And then we are going to go back to our church and strategize on, you know, whatever it is that we heard. I think it means bringing more people to the table. And I think it means having really authentic conversations when you do have to go by yourself and saying, this is what I heard. How does that strike you? Um, here's the live feed. If y'all would be watching the live feed, when I come back next Sunday, we're going to have a conversation about it. Um, let's make a list. Here are the, here are the three workshops that I'm going to go to. What would you like me to say while I'm there? Right. But I, I think we have to do a better job of not being an ally in our heads and actually being an ally to the people in our lives. Yeah. Does that make sense, friends? Um, I'll give you one more example. So I was at a church speaking and I was talking about my book and how important it was for me to be like super black in a, in a workplace. I think someone had asked me whether or not I mind being called black. And I'm like, girl, please. I, I is black. Let there be no mistake that black is not a bad word for me. Okay. Black is glorious. Let's establish this ground rule. Right. And then a black woman stands up later on and she starts to talk about her workplace where she was known as the black woman, not the smart woman, not the creative woman, not the right capable woman, but the black woman. And I realized in that moment that what it would mean to be an ally to me and my workplace was not the same as what it would have meant to be an ally to her and her workplace. In my workplace, I needed people to be like, she's black and it's okay, right? In her workplace, she needed folks to call her the creative one and the intelligent one. And the, does that make sense, y'all? So I think we got to do a better job at figuring out what it is that our community needs, what it is that our people need, um, because that might be different based on the community that you're in. And I think that's especially true when we take it out of this like black-white paradigm that I keep putting it in, right? I think... Um, so like college campuses often have to think about the layers of students of color, right? So we've got international students who need to talk about the travel ban. We've got black students who need to talk about what it's like to be a minority. We've got, <laughs> right, um, Asian students who are constantly being told that their papers aren't good enough, even though English is the only language they have ever known, right? So we have to think through the layers of people of color in our lives. And I think we just need to do a better job of that in general. All right, let's maybe do one, one or two more. Are you okay? Do you have a question? You ain't got no questions. <laughs> um, so we're talking about like, things at a church level. Yeah. Um, a lot of churches are not diverse. Yes. Talk about that. Um, but even if they're not diverse, they might care about racial justice. Right. Um, so kind of something I've been thinking about is like, how do churches come together? Like, with this thing of like a black church and a white church, they both care about it. I feel like it's weird if a black church goes to a white church and says, yes. we have racial reconciliation, and in the other direction. And um, just kind of like from my personal perspective, if someone comes to me and says they care about it, right? I'm like skeptical. Oh, it's like I can't, I can't really engage unless oh, it's, fine. <laughs> it's not me. <laughs> I looked, I double checked. It's not my phone. I just want to be clear. <laughs> okay. So, um, so yeah, the question is like, or what I was saying was, um, yeah, I kind of need to know where someone's coming from. If someone says Black Lives Matter, my first right. question is, what is that? Yeah. What do you mean by that? Yeah. That lives matter. That's right. Uh huh. So, like, how how do churches come together at a church level when we don't have, we don't know each other, we don't necessarily trust each other? Yeah. Yeah. I think pastors have to come together to figure out: Are we aligned? Right. And are we are we teaching the same things? Right. Like, are we disrupting theology together? Are we 
um, perpetuating white supremacy? Are we, do we actually follow along all lives matter or blue lives matter? Like, like where are we for real, <laughs> right? And then the second question, which I think not all pastors ask themselves is where is my congregation? Because I often end up in a situation where a pastor has read my book and nobody else. And I realize that I am the introduction to racial justice. Can y'all imagine me being the introduction? That just wasn't fair. That wasn't right. It wasn't right. <laughs> I know, right? No, I'm kidding. Um, so I think there are ways it can be done. I, I think um, if I were to add one more thing, I think it would be really important to keep drilling down. So not racial justice is important, right? Education is important and this school does not receive as much money as this school. How can we change that? Right? I think I need us to get out of this like the, the trendy racial justice, right? Where it's just something I care about or something I read about and drill down into the real world around us and say this, this is what needs to change. The curriculum at this school needs to change. Um, the principal, the, the staff and faculty need to be more diverse right here, right? Um, can we create a new model for how education works in the city at all? Can we, right? So I think um, churches can come together on these issues, but we gotta take it out. What most churches wanna do is have this like dialogue with a black choir and a white choir and stage a harmonious thing, not actually pursue justice. And I think that's partly why, is because we won't even name what the injustice is in our own community. I think we're really good at, we, meaning, uh, uh, claiming myself as part of the white culture, is sure. very good at programming. So sure. I can program it. Sure. I can platform it. Yep. I, can, I can write a tech script about that's it. That's right. right? And, uh, that's right. And so I've done my, my job. I've yes. done my duty. And now I get to be invited to the next conference to speak about how to become a multiracial, multicultural church. Listen. Right? So. And there are a lot of multiracial churches that achieve their multiracialness by avoiding these topics. Right. Right? They call themselves apolitical. And they decide we're just not going to touch it. We're going to talk about love, yeah. and we're going to talk about peace, and we're going to talk about grace, and we're going to talk, right? But we are not going to talk about race, homosexuality, right? We're not going to talk about identity. We're not going to talk about anything that has to do with anybody's identity. As, as if the gospel had nothing to do with those things, you right? Got that, it. The separate. You this got is, it. I mean, this goes back to the conversation we were having at dinner the other uh, last night, where um, you just so clearly articulated that um, part of, I, I guess, white theology would be this um, nice compartmentalization of particular pieces, right? The, the missions piece, the justice piece, That's the right. theology piece. But, That's right. Um, I don't know if you remember or if you can rearticulate. Um, black theology or a different theology sure. is there is no difference between no. having a faith and working for justice, right? <laughs> right. I often get asked when I'm in predominantly white spaces, this just happened at the last um, university I was at, um, and someone asked me, can you, can you help tie together faith and justice for me? And I, well, I started to try, right? Because there is this whole movement of particularly conservative folks trying to say that justice is inherently biblical and here's where it is, right? Y'all know this is happening, right? And I started to like go down that trajectory and I was like, wait, see, out of my lane. I'm not a theologian. I said, listen, this is why this is hard for me to answer. Because when I go into a black church, 
um, it's very different from what I experience when I'm in a white church. So I grew up in this Christian chapel-y Friday accepting Jesus thing, right? Here's what a typical sermon would sound like. Um, here is toothpaste. I am now squeezing the toothpaste. The toothpaste is now outside of the tube. This is like our words. Our words sometimes come out of the tube. Mm -hmm. Uh-huh, I am not making this up. Child, will you please come up and try and get the toothpaste back into the tube? Child cannot get toothpaste back into the tube. Children, these are like our words. Once they're out there, you cannot put them back. So let us all be careful about the words that we speak. Y'all understand what I'm saying, right? <laughs> <clears throat> that was very normal for me. I was like, got it. For the next week, I will try and be careful about what I say to my brother. Right? I walk into a black church, and black church is like, in the book of Exodus, there are two women who defy Pharaoh, <laughs> right? Who practice a little civil disobedience, who decide they are not going to follow the law. They are not going to kill all these children. They are not going to, right? Don't, don't stop. For black... <laughs> <laughs> Come on. We, we got another three hours to go, Austin. Come on. <laughs> right? For, for black churches and a lot of ethnic churches, there, are, there is no difference. There is no like, oh, here's my theology over here and here's justice over here it's like clearly one and the same it's just it's not even a question um that if you walked up to your average black pastor and asked that same question the pastor would be like what is you talking about <laughs> right? like, um and i think think that's a gift of ethnic churches right i think that's a gift because so much of what we've had to do is survival and look to God, look to Jesus, look to scriptures as a way of survival. And I think the white church has a lot to learn mm -hmm. about how people of color read the Bible. Mm. Oh man, we could talk for a whole nother time just on, on that piece and all the stories. Um, just because of time and, and you have an early, early flight tomorrow. <laughs> um, I normally end most of my conversational interviews with a question that I'm, I don't, do not want to ask. And the question that I do not want to ask that I normally ask is what gives you hope? But I, just a little plug for the Austin Channing Brown Academy, for those of you who want to oh, follow yeah. up, I watched your interview with Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil. Yes. And um, I'm so glad I did that before <laughs> this, because in that interview, she talks, uh, both of you actually, mm -hmm. talk about the um, sometimes encouragement that people might have of you to say, well, well be hopeful, right. be hopeful, right? Right. Um, and you had a, both of you just had a wonderful response and I was wondering if you could just share sure. the, the difference or the idea of the concept of hope versus optimism and what that means in this context mm -hmm. and uh, close us out with that work. Yeah, so she, um she was listening to, I think, Cornell West preach, and Cornell West was talking about walking by faith, right? And when you walk by faith, there isn't necessarily evidence of what you are hoping for, right? Um, and she said, it's, it's optimism that most people are looking for. Most people want optimism. They don't actually want hope. They want optimism. And she said, I can't give you optimism because I can't point to any reasons for why I should be optimistic. He's just like, once again, have you watched the news lately? <laughs> what, would, what would you like me to point to and say, yep, that's how I know everything's going to be okay. 
She said, but what I can do, what I have to really dig deep for is hope, is the belief that there is something still happening in the world that I cannot see, that I don't have any evidence for. And I've, I've started, I, I get this question a lot. And the truth is, is I think if I were to ask my great grandmother this question, or if I was to come to her, she, she passed away when I was 19, um, but she was born in 1908. And I think if I asked her, Nana, what do you think about this whole hope thing? Like, you know, I'm just not feeling very hopeful. I think she would be like, child, please. Girl, you better go get to work. You live in the year 2019. Don't talk to me about no hope. And so I think part of what people of color are doing is that we don't have the luxury of asking about hope. We don't have the luxury of optimism. We don't have the, like, we just have to do the work. The work demands bodies, and here we are because our children's lives depend on it, our significant other's lives depend on it, our own lives depend on it. So we have to get to work, whether we feel hopeful or not. And so many of us turn to our ancestors, right? So I think about my great-grandmother, born in 1906, her grandfather, her, yes, her grandfather was a slave. What I look like talking to her, like, you know, Nan, I'm just not feeling hopeful. She'd be like, girl, if you don't go find a protest, Right? <laughs> you better go do something for the people, right? Um, so I think too often we try to search for hope as opposed to embodying hope. Mm. And I think we have to do a better job of embodying hope, of saying, I don't see change, but I'm still going to search for it. I'm still going to seek it. I'm still going to do this in hopes that what I'm doing matters. Yeah. That's awesome. Austin, thank you. My pleasure. Thank you so much. My pleasure. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. <laughs>